welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Turn the Page, the official podcast of Syosset Public Library. I'm Jen, uh, a library aide in media, and I am here with my fabulous co-host. Hey, this is Jessica. Welcome back, everybody, to the official podcast of Syosset Library, not the unofficial one. <laughs> we have to make that happen one day. Like, we should we have an unauthorized. Like, yeah, we, we all we need to like wear like goatees and stuff and like pretend we're evil. anyway evil or not we are here with a supremely talented writer whose work we both admire so highly could we ask you to introduce yourself and your book please hey my name is annalee newitz i'm a science journalist who also writes science fiction and my latest book is a science fiction novel called the terraformers So The Terraformers is a multi-generational epic set 60,000 years in the future. So lots of stuff has happened. We have lots of new technologies. And it's about three generations of workers who are helping to create an Earth-like planet for a somewhat sketchy interstellar real estate development company. And over the course of the book, uh, which takes about, you know, a few thousand years because future and terraforming takes a really long time, um, our group of characters start to realize just how shady this company is and what they can do to fight back. And for me, the most fun part of this book, other than doing research on how to build a planet, was putting together the characters. Um, Some of them are humans that you might recognize. Some of them are robots. Some of them are uh, animals with human equivalent intelligence. So there's a flying moose, who's one of my favorite characters. There's a cyborg cow. Um, Of course, there's naked mole rats working in the labs. Um, And one of the main characters is a sentient flying train because I love public transit and I wanted to imagine what it would be like to chat with the trains that I ride on every day. So that's there. It's the story of these people and their struggle to claim the land that they've helped to create. So I've read all three of your novels and I love them all extremely, extremely deeply. Um, And one of the things, you're welcome. One of the things that um, impresses me the most about them is that these books are all so different in, um, you know, the world building and their concerns and the structure. But despite the diversity in the stories, like you deal with a lot of the same themes and ideas and questions about technology and identity. And I'm just wondering, like, how do, um, you know, how do these interests that you've developed, like, how do they allow you to go to so many different places in your stories, if that makes sense? Yeah, it's it's really true. I, I actually noticed that all of my novels start with people killing a crappy guy. And I, had, I I was like, okay, my next novel can definitely not start with killing a crappy guy because this is getting to be kind of a weird theme. Um, but I think the reason they start that way is because all of my stories are about power struggles and they're about who is allowed to count as an important person, who's allowed to be, to determine their own destiny in each of these worlds. 
And so I think that they often start with this kind of violent conflict because, in fact, as we know from being humans on Earth, a lot of these kinds of power struggles do become violent. And a lot of my characters have been exposed to that violence and want to stop it or um, want to find a community of people that accepts them and values them and isn't a violent community. And so I think um, these are pretty big transcendent themes. Um, you know, they they kind of cross history and they cross a lot of different worlds. And so that's why you, in my work, you'll visit a lot of different worlds, but you're never going to forget that certain people are in charge and they're trying to protect what they have. And that means disenfranchising the majority of characters in the story. Definitely. Um, you know, it's so funny. Like it was almost like a tour of your other novels when you were just saying that before. I was like, yeah, definitely. Uh, <laughs> well, so, um, I mean, one really quick question I have um, is that, that Terraformers has been kind of, it's kind of like three interconnected novellas. Um, did it start as smaller stories and then you wove them together? Or did you always think that, um, you know, conceive of the story to go in that direction? Yeah, that's a really good question. I always wanted it to secretly be three interconnected novellas. Um, again, I, I love I love intergenerational stories and I love um, interconnected uh, novellas that kind of take us to a new place, but require well, don't require, but they take us to a new place and then build on themes from the previous story. So I'm a huge fan of like Murderbot, and um, I feel like those books do a really good job um, of, of exploring new places, but taking our same characters along with us. And um, so when I was, it, the, I think the one thing that changed a lot is that when I first conceived of the book, I was like, okay, it's gonna be three equal parts. And I had, when I pitched the book, I already knew what the main characters would be in each section. Um, I thought I knew. And as I wrote, what ended up happening was the first section about Destry, who is a, a homo sapiens living on this planet. Um, and she's there before the planet is really inhabited by anyone other than the workers who are developing the planet. So it's a completely undeveloped natural, quote unquote, natural ecosystem. I mean, it can't be too natural because they built it from scratch. <laughs> um, they've <laughs> deliberately put all that stuff there. Um, but her story wound up being a lot longer than I thought it would be. So her story takes up almost, I think it's almost half the book. And, and that makes sense because a lot of the events that she witnesses and a lot of the decisions that she makes are incredibly important to later parts of the book. And her legacy is, continues to be in people's minds even after she's dead, which she's, she's dead by the second and third parts of the book. And so um, I guess if I'd had another year or two years, I might have made the third section of the book a bit longer so we could have had more time with the train. It's still a, a it's a hefty book. It's the longest book I've ever written. Um, but it's still, it's not a doorstopper. Like I kept telling my editor, it's going to be an epic. And she's like, oh, okay, like 200,000 words. And I'm like, no, like 110,000 words. <laughs> like, <laughs> so to me, that's a long, uh, a long book. But I realized that for other people, that's kind of a normal length. Yeah, I was fascinated by the structure. And, um, you know, one of the questions that I had with regards to that was, um, you know, you achieve like a very delicate balance with it because like we're looking at these like, epic 
processes that take place over such large time scales, but they're still very like real emotional states because you're still talking about like individuals who have finite, if like, you know, extended lives. And I was wondering, like, how did you sort of like, how did you imagine like how people would like change and relate to each other and grow and evolve over such long periods, you know, because like so much of how we interact with the world and other other people has to do with like, you know, how we're here for a short time and, you know, we want to do things while we're here. So like, how did you envision that for such a different sort of like time uh, scale? Yeah, that's, that's a super good question. And I hadn't quite thought about it before because you're right. I mean, these are characters who can conceivably live for a thousand years or even longer. Um, some of the characters who are very wealthy, who have access to a lot of resources live for like 5,000 years. Um, and in fact, there's one character who's kind of a bad guy who is alive throughout the entire course of the book. And we see her change and um, kind of evolve a little bit. And I, I think what I was thinking about a lot with these characters is that they have jobs that are um, that take they're dealing with geological processes and ecological processes. So when we think of our lives, we think, OK, I have a job um, you know, where I go in the morning and I come home in the evening and I have projects that might take a year or a week or maybe a book project that takes five years or something. Um, but for someone like Destry, who's the main character in the first section, her job takes about a thousand years, like in order to grow a forest, um, a rich, uh, well-stocked forest that has good soil and all of the other stuff they need, that, you know, kind of requires that kind of attention span, you know, that you need to be around for hundreds of years. So I feel like her experience kind of expands to fill that project. And so she doesn't necessarily think of it as she's not like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do with my time? She's like, well, first I have to grow the trees. That's going to take a few hundred years. Then I have to make sure that the ecosystem is in balance. And she deals with a lot of ecosystem emergencies. There's like volcanoes. Um, there's a horrific uh, ecosystem emergency that she talks about in a flashback where she's dealing with a bunch of um, crocodilians that just keep fighting with each other and eating each other and they can't figure out why all the crocodiles are eating all the mammals and like and that's actually based on a on a real ecosystem um in the early triassic period where it's a super unstable ecosystem where there were a bunch of crocodilians that were um eating each other and competing with each other and they kept going extinct and like the ecosystem kept collapsing and um, anyway, that's one of my favorite uh, ecosystem stories. <laughs> Threw it in. Um, so one of the things that is happening, though, to answer your question about their emotional lives is that we do see characters having uh, multiple relationships over their lives that are very important to them. Um, there's, you know, Destry has uh, a, an old friend and lover who is kind of in her past, but kind of in her present. She has she develops new, really deep relationships that last for for centuries. And so it gives her a very strong sense of family with her colleagues in the environmental rescue team, which is the group that's developing the ecosystem. And so we see her family is quite expansive, include, and it includes like a moose. Whistle, her, her best friend and mount is, is a moose. And Whistle has 
um, you know, a whole romantic arc and like a drama that she's involved in. And she's kind of his best friend, but she's kind of his mom. And like, it's really complicated, you know, like having that kind of a long-term relationship means having to transition from being kind of a parent figure to being kind of a sibling figure or like a friend figure. And so we get to kind of see how people navigate that. And that's something that a lot of humans kind of do, but it is harder because we are, we do we're such a short time that we're here. And, um, you know, we don't, we don't get to have the pleasure of watching a whole ecosystem evolve like Destry does. So um, there's definitely some wish fulfillment in there for me. Like, I wish I could see the outcome of this ecosystem collapse. Hopefully, you know, a future generation will watch the ecosystems rise again on Earth. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I So, like, do you consider um, this speculative fiction um, in a way? Because I know you do, you know your stuff when it comes to to this, um, and you just dazzled us with that fun story <laughs> about <laughs> about your favorite um, ecosystem collapse. Uh, do, do you consider this speculative fiction? Oh, absolutely! This is speculative fiction for sure. This is. Um... In some ways, this is very old school science fiction. You know, it's about uh, an outer space colony. Um, I mean, it's set on the planet. We don't actually go into space very often in, in the story, but it's an interplanetary interstellar civilization connected by wormholes. They have technologies that are unimaginable to us, right? Like I don't, I, I definitely sketched out a kind of timeline between now and this future, but um, not every single invention that we see on this planet, we don't know if it's possible. Like, are we going to have all of the characters in this book are genetically engineered? And like I said, there's non-human animals like moose and cows that are basically human. Uh, they're not human, they're people, right? They're, they're human equivalent people. And I mean, will that ever happen? I don't know. Like, I, I mean, it's vaguely based on science that we have now, but it's, the pleasure of setting a book 60,000 years in the future is I can say like, sure, why not? That could happen. You know, we could develop an interstellar civilization. I mean, it's one possibility. And, you know, another possibility is very, very different. So um, so I, I like to have, I guess what you could call very grounded um, speculative fiction. So a lot of the things in the book are very hand wavy. I mean, for example, Whistle the Moose can fly. Many of the characters can fly. Um, well, why is that? Well, I like the idea of being able to fly. <laughs> so I came up with a hand wavy notion that there's something called gravity mesh that you can apparently implant into people's bodies and it makes them fly. I have some ideas about how that might feel. I have no idea how that would work. It doesn't make sense if you're a physicist, there'd be a lot of energy released. It could you know there's a lot of sort of assumptions about like how we now can kind of control things at a molecular level that we absolutely can't now at an atomic level i should say um so there's that kind of goofy stuff and then there's also very realistic ecosystems in the book and i did a lot of research on the geology of the planet i talked to geologists um, i talked to a couple of experts on um, plate tectonics, which is a big part of the story about how volcanoes function on the planet. Um, there's There are ecosystems in this book that are very strongly based on ecosystems from 
um, Brazil, from Canada, um, and a few other places that I've thrown in. Um, and as I'm writing, I, I would have like many windows open in my browser to like scientific papers or, um, you know, educational materials that were like, here's, if you had a boreal forest, this is what the soil would be like. If you had a um, tropical savanna, this is the kind of plant life you would expect to see. Um, because my characters are environmental scientists, so they would be thinking about those things too. So there's um, a mixture of what I would call kind of um, highly speculative science with very grounded realistic science. So um, it's a that's, I think, a standard science fiction thing to do. I am uh, particularly interested in how you um, imagine the relationships between the human and less human sentient creatures because it's very like it's very lived in and very messy and complicated like to the extent that like even the people in the relationships are like what is the hierarchy here and like should there be a hierarchy and like you know what do we do about it and all that kind of stuff and I'm just wondering like what sort of uh like what what went into imagining like the consciousnesses of such a, a wide diversity of human life yeah, it's, I mean, that again was a big pleasure in, in writing this book was I knew that there would be a lot of people who were not humans and a lot of, even some of the characters who are kind of humanoid are not homo sapiens. They're called homo alteris, which is kind of a knockoff brand of homo sapiens. And, um, and even again, the homo sapiens like have all kinds of weird modifications. So I, I love thinking about humans' relationships with non-human intelligence. And I think now, especially in the last like 10 years, um, scientists are starting to more openly talk about the idea that non-human animals have intelligence that maybe we just don't understand yet or that we're just beginning to appreciate. Um, corvids like crows and ravens um, are incredible puzzle solvers. It really seems like octopuses are probably maybe as smart as we are, or maybe they're smart in a different way, but like maybe as smart, we're starting to realize that intelligence itself is extremely flexible. Um, one of the things that I think is so inspiring about um, movements around neurodiversity is acknowledging that even among humans, we have many ways of thinking about the world and many kinds of intelligence. We're not, we don't all, you know, things like IQ tests are just such crap because they only measure this one type of thinking. And there's so many ways to think about the world brilliantly and, and in a helpful way that have nothing to do with being able to get a really high score on an IQ test. So I approach it thinking about, I try to think about non-human creatures, like say a, a moose, like Whistle, who's a major character. Um, I spent a lot of time reading, there's a scientific journal about moose behavior <laughs> called Alsace. Um, and so I read a lot about like moose um, emotional expressions and like how do moose express happiness. As far as we know, I mean, moose are not very widely studied, unfortunately. 
Um, it's mostly sort of like wildlife ecologists and um, land management um, experts who are studying them. But one thing I learned is that they love water and they love to play in the water and they like to kick up their back feet when they're playing in the water. And, um, and so I thought a lot about like, how would, like, how would whistle express happiness? Like he's not gonna smile, but he kicks up his heels. And um, I read for my cow character, Zest, I read about cow facial expressions um, because a lot of farmers um, and, and um, ranchers think about like, what does a cow look like if it's in pain? And actually we know pretty well, like when cows are in pain or upset, they kind of, um, their faces look uh, um, kind of skeletal because they're, they're clenching their teeth and their muscles are really tense. So their faces kind of look like they're um, wan, you know, like they're, they're kind of withdrawn and the, the skin kind of retracts into their skull. And so I was like, all right, like now I have a sense of what a cow would look like when she's upset. And indeed the character gets really pissed off at one point. And I talk about how her skin is kind of tight against her skull, her skull um, at that point. So I think about that stuff. And then also in the book, um, one of the ways that the bioengineers who've built all of these people have tried to create a false hierarchy is that they've actually built certain people to have a full and complete vocabulary they are they have neurotypical brains and they are able to express themselves as they like but then there are other classes of people um, called mounts like whistle the the moose who destry rides um, and they are they also have full intelligence but their brains have been damaged so that they can only speak in monosyllables. So that was actually one of the things I was very careful about when Whistle speaks, or Whistle doesn't speak, Whistle texts, because Whistle doesn't have a human mouth, but when Whistle texts, Whistle can only use words with one syllable unless he's using um, like a proper name. And so it makes him sound like he is a fool oftentimes. It makes him sound like he's less intelligent. And I, I thought that that was a very plausible way that a screwed up hierarchical society would um, try to create creatures that they thought of as being lesser than was they would they would say like, oh, well, uh, we're going to measure intelligence with language. Certain uh, certain animals just can't speak. And um, there's another class of creatures called blessed and blesseds can only talk about the work that they do. So they can only say something if it is related to like, say they're a cook, they can only say things related to cooking or food. Um, and so it allows the people who are at the top of the hierarchy to feel very smart indeed, because of course they can say whatever they like um, and everyone else is forced to like express themselves in these really limited ways. So. Um, so that was a way that has nothing to do with um, really thinking about real life non-human animals on Earth and more thinking about how humans imagine intelligence and how false it is and how constructed it is. Um, and I often do think, I mean, I'm one of those people who does believe that many non-human animals are human equivalent in intelligence. Like, I'm sure that dolphins and whales and elephants and corvids and like, uh, you know, all kinds of animals are, they're just like us, but they don't communicate in the same way. But because they don't communicate like us, humans are like, oh, well, they must just be dumber. You know, they must have, you know, faulty minds. 
And it's really just because we haven't freaking bothered to try to translate what they're saying. And I often think like, what if we just put a lot of effort into trying to translate what dolphins are saying instead of pretending like, oh, they're just making sounds. Funny how they have unique sounds for each other, almost like a name, but that couldn't be a name. It's just a unique sound. And I'm like, dude, it's a name. Like, come on. Anyway, I get very, I get very pissed off about that kind of stuff. <laughs> it's funny because you kind of just already um, sort of uh, went into something I was going to talk about, uh, just, you know, like the, the theme of dominance over animals um, and uh, just uh, just a really quick comment. And then I'll, I'll give it back over to Jen. You know, I, I like in a way uh, just this was a more nuanced version or I, I don't want to say version because it's not a, it, it's not. But it was like almost it, it's almost like a more nuanced look at um, say like brave new world where it's like, okay, yes. we're all born in factories and, and this bottle is this and you have this in it and you're, you're this class and you're this class, you know, this was just, it, it's just more nuanced than, than that. Um, I, I was that actually part, were you thinking that at all while you but were putting this together? I must have been. Um, I, I mean, I read brave new world, um, when I was pretty young and then reread it later as an adult. And I do, I, I find that story really compelling. I wasn't conscious of it, but I'm sure it was in the back of my mind. I think what was more at the front of my mind were books like uh, Watership Down, um, which I read as a kid. And I mean, I think all of us had our hearts ripped out by it. Um, and, um, you know, like the comic book by Grant Morrison called We Three, which is about uh, a military project to uplift a cute bunny and a cute kitty and a doggy. Oh, my God. I was I actually read that comic book while I was at the gym working out, which was incredibly silly to do. And I was like weeping as I was on the Stairmaster. <laughs> it was not good. Um, and I was also like later in the book, I was really influenced um, by the um, the TV show Tuca and Birdie which is also about a world of non-human people and um it's it's a very it's a very different kind of story but it's still it's a world of many types of animals having intelligence and um i just all of those things were kind of smushed up together in my mind plus with just the fact that like i think many people have had a fantasy of being friends with a moose because they're so cute and their noses apparently i recently read an article that said that they have the softest noses in the animal kingdom <laughs> i was like i want to touch the softest nose in the animal kingdom <laughs> i'm so glad that that's a statistic that somebody is, is measuring and maintaining like that's <laughs> i i'm sure that it's not entirely accurate i mean i don't even know how do you measure yeah. softness like i don't know what the smallest unit of soft nose is but like <laughs> They do look very soft, though. Me too. Um, okay. Oh, yeah. So speaking of your different, like, uh, cultural uh, cultural touchstones and uh, literary illusions, my brain was kind of uh, sparked by one of the... Um, so each chapter has a an excerpt from uh, the guide that the, the rangers, all these characters use in order to terraform. And one of them that really stuck with me was don't build a person if you don't intend to be their ally. And I was like, is that like sort of a, like a direct rebuke to uh, like Victor Frankenstein, you know? <laughs> oh yeah, actually. I mean, I hadn't thought of it, but 
yes. <laughs> I mean, it's a, I feel like to me, that was a rebuke to things like people like Frankenstein, um, scientists who are trying to, you know, build new life forms, uh, even today. Um, but also parents, you know, like if you're building a child, like that's your ally. Don't, don't build a child if you're going to abuse them. Like, mm-hmm. that's just like hard, hard no. Um, and I feel like a lot of, um, and I'm definitely not the first person to say this, but I do think that in our civilization, a lot of our animal abuse and our child abuse come from kind of the same broken place in, in human culture. And um, it's, I just feel very strongly that, that that's how we should approach life is like, if you, if you bring a life into the world, however you do it, if it's in the lab or from your own body, like that's your future friend and treat them like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, just to wrap up with a little bit of a left turn, um, I I loved that Destry was named Destry, <laughs> and I I appreciated the reference so much, and it just fit the character so well. And that first scene is such a perfect sort of like um, like very iconic like Western showdown type scene, you know. And so I was wondering, were there like other uh, Western texts, either books or films or characters and stuff that like kind of informed uh, your portrayal here? Uh, yeah, I mean, in general, it was definitely, there are parts of this book that are homages to Westerns. Um, and of course, there's many references to Destry Rides again in this novel, although not as many as I'd originally thought there would be. <laughs> Um, there are a lot of characters who have names that come from the movie Destry Rides Again. And um, for folks who haven't seen it, the thing that's great about that that movie is that it's kind of an anti-Western. It's an anti-gun Western. Um, and the thing about Destry Jr. is that he is a crack shot, but he hates guns and he doesn't think that people should have guns. And he only uses his gun in a great emergency like he will not he's not a gunslinger he's like a protector and a defender um your classic white hat um and uh so the character destry in my novel is kind of the child of of that character in a way like her dad is a destry and her mom is frenchie and in the movie frenchie is the um woman who runs the brothel who becomes an ally of destry when he comes to town so um I was thinking about that. I was thinking a lot about, um, you know, classic 30s Westerns. Um, I, I've been really influenced by the aesthetics of those Westerns, the big open landscapes, um, the stories of, um, of Europeans colonizing the West. And this is explicitly an anti-colonizer novel, um, as it will be very obvious to anyone reading it. Um, it's about um, people who... Uh, have lived on the land for a long time, laying claim to that land and refusing to allow it to be colonized. And um, so there's also in the book, uh, a lot of references to the colonization of Canada by Europeans. There's a lot of cities that take their names from um, cities in Canada that have large indigenous populations like Laurent, and um, which is of course one of the heroic cities in the book. And um, so there's a lot of stuff in there that's kind of Western, but anti-Western at the same time. It's sort of like, what if, um, what if the colonization of the West in the Americas um, ha- were set in this really different 
place. So there's also a lot of things that don't match up. Like, I don't want to say it's not an allegory. It's, it's definitely a very, very different world in a very different context. Um, but there's echoes for sure. It's, it's definitely inspired by decolonization movements and land back movements. Mm. I love that, you know, and I really love the way that this book uses genre. And I just feel like over the course of like doing this job and, you know, interviewing so many writers and reading so many books, like it's really changed the way that I think about genre. And I sort of see it less as a place that you write from and kind of more as like a buffet that you partake of, you know, like, and I was wondering like, yeah, how do you see this project like relating to the various genres that you touch on and dip into? Um, in some ways, I do think it's a classic science fiction novel because it is about terraforming classic trope in science fiction it's set on another planet. It has doesn't have aliens, but it has non-human people. Um, has robots as major characters. And, and of course, science fiction does share a lot of territory with the Western. I think that was a kind of a pun. I don't know. Anyway, so there's, there's like a lot of overlap between the two. And so I think of it as, I mean, I just think of it as a story, you know, it's, it's a story. It's strongly influenced by science fiction. Um, and, you know, I just, I hope that people who love science fiction will like it. And I hope that people who love, um, just storytelling about generational relationships will like it too, you know? So, um, you know, I hope that people get different stuff out of it, but I don't like, I don't sit down and say like, I'm going to have 30% this, you know, 30% science fiction, 20% fantasy. Like it's just, I love science and so i automatically end up writing science fiction and then the other stuff that creeps in is from you know the culture that i'm living in where i saw a lot of westerns <laughs> so are you working on another book right now i am i'm actually i'm finishing up my next nonfiction book which is a history of psychological and cultural warfare in the united states um, it's been, it's probably the most difficult book I've ever written. It's very depressing, obviously. <laughs> um, and it will have a happy ending. Like the final part of the book is about, um, how to end psychological war, how to engage in, um, psychological disarmament. Uh, but I'm not to that section yet. <laughs> so I'm still in the really depressing part. Um, and I do have another novel that I'm working on as well. Um, I'm under contract for, a uh, another novel from Tor, and um it's gonna be i'm pretty sure it's gonna be about an alien graduate student who is studying human culture in a brothel in ancient rome that's what <gasps> i think right now <laughs> we'll see what happens <laughs> wow that sounds amazing i i a particular thing for me lately has been like novels about grad students too because i just sort of like graduated from that experience myself and i'm like gosh I have a lot of processing to do. I'm glad people are writing about it. Yeah, <laughs> me too. As as someone who was a graduate student for a long time, I have I have many feelings that I need to. <laughs> I, I think that's another thing in all my books. There's always graduate students or people who are like in some way connected to like scholarly institutions. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> oh man, this was so much fun. I really yes. hope we can get back to you and talk to you about that because that sounds yeah. amazing. Literally, yep. like everything that that I see your name on, I'm like, yes, we're reading. Aww, <laughs> and actually, it's thank funny you. Jen, before she became a um, a worker here, uh, we were friends, and you were working in a bookstore, right? 
yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was like, Jen, read Future of Another Timeline. It will change your life. (laughs) (laughs) And then pretty much like eight days later, I was like, yeah, crying in the bathtub. I'm like, yes, my life has changed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that book made me cry too. It's always weird when you write a scene that makes you cry. (laughs) You're like, oh my gosh. It's a thing. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. This was amazing. Um, please come back and chat with us about anything you want. Really, absolutely. Like, just like I want to talk to you about cereal. I'll be like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> My thoughts on bran. <laughs> <laughs> Happy to share. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Dan. You guys asked such Ask great brand questions. With library. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that is my next sci-fi novel. It's just basically going to be about Bran, sentient Bran, you know, it's it's journey through my intestines. (laughs) Okay. Yes, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. And thank you, listeners, for listening. I highly recommend that you pick up the Terraformers. It's absolutely fantastic. Uh, This is Jen and my co-host is Jessica. <laughs> Signing off with Annalie Newitz and the Terraformers. And it's time to close this chapter. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank, oh, you. Great. Thank you so much. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode.